Luke chapter 8 this morning, Luke chapter 8, after a week off for worship serve, which was great, uh, we're jumping back into our series, Jesus for Everyone, and we're going to see that theme come out again like we have almost every week we've been in this book, and we're kind of picking back up not just mid-series in Jesus for Everyone, but mid-thought by Luke here in chapter 8. So we're going to need a, a bit of a refresher as to what Luke is telling us and where we are mid-thought here in Luke uh, chapter 8. And so we'll get to that here in just, uh, in just a minute. This past Friday, my, uh, my family had a chance to, to hang out a little bit, a little bit of uh, before school starts back, getting out and doing something. And we went up to Anakista in uh, in Gatlinburg, and we had a we had a great night out together. It was a lot of fun, uh, a lot of laughing. And as we're getting ready to leave, we had to wait in the massive line. If you've been there, you know that that the line can get super long for the chairlift that takes you up the the mountain. Right? Uh, we had to wait for the the the, the chairlift, and uh, in the course of that, as we're kind of standing in line, Isaiah and I got into a bit of a, a disagreement about which. Uh, which chair we would get. Details aren't really that important, but what you need to know is that it led to a $5 bet. It led to a $5 bet about who, which, which one we were going to get in and how it was going to work, a bet which I ended up uh, winning. There was never really any doubt that I was going to win it, but I ended up winning, uh, and he, but he had rightfully agreed to it. That was, that was the terms. I won the $5 bet, and now, depending on which parent you are, I am, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty, and I'm pretty sure every mom and dad are split on how you view this. The question comes up, especially since Isaiah has basically spent all of his money recently. The, the question comes up, should he have to pay up on his bet? Does he have to pay up on uh, the bet? And, and depending on which parent you are, uh, one parent says, yes, absolutely. And the other parent says, well, no, you shouldn't make them uh, do this. You shouldn't make them uh, make them. See, one school of thought says that he needs to learn his lesson and not make dumb bets. Because if you make dumb bets, then you win dumb prizes and you have to pay up and, and learn your uh, lesson. This is, this is a, a, a failure that you can learn in this moment over $5 that will impact you for the rest of your life. This can teach him that gambling is dumb and you shouldn't do these kind of things. Like losing $5 or more if you do this kind of stuff. A bet's a bet. And then there's the other parent, the one that says... Haha, ha, that's funny. Okay, you guys played your game, uh, and you you can't make him pay with what little money he has left. You don't you don't need five dollars. He he doesn't have five dollars. So let's just let bygones be bygones. Don't be such a stickler. Don't be so hard on the kid. You won the bet. Now just let it go. Show some grace and mercy. Now you can guess between Emily and I, which is which in this uh, in this scenario. Here's the thing. I am 100% in favor of teaching a lesson. I am 100% uh, in favor of, of using this as a teaching moment. Emily is the pushover. She is the one that is, that is way too soft. I'm not heartless, though, so don't misunderstand me. My goal in all of this was just to make Isaiah sweat just a little bit. That's all I really wanted to do, just make him be like, what, what am I going to do? Where, where can I find $5? Make him think about it. And then, after making him sweat a little bit, I was going to forgive the debt against him. That was the goal. 
So we leave Gatlinburg. Uh, he's got $5 hanging over his head this whole time. Uh, we're driving through Pigeon Forge, and, and we're, uh, we're, we're all pretty thirsty. We stop. I get some water at a gas station, went in. And when I came back out, I got in the car, and Isaiah immediately says, Mom says I don't have to pay the $5. I was like, are you kidding me right now? That's the first thing he says as soon as we get in the car. I was shocked. I'm not sure what mom has to do with any of this. I'm not sure how she factors into this equation at all. She's not the one that owes the money, nor is she the one that is owed the money. She, she has no jurisdiction in this matter as far as I'm concerned. She does not get to decide whether or not he pays the $5 back or uh, not. I was not happy at all because she had spoiled my chance both to teach a lesson and to show some grace. So I proceeded to make a teaching point out of this. I proceeded uh, to, 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 to make this whole thing, and I thought I gave a really good gospel presentation. And this is like straight out of Deuteronomy 6, right? This is the way that it's supposed to work. Teach them diligently to your children while you sit, while you walk along the way, when you rise, and when you lie down, and when your son makes dumb, ill-advised bets. Teach them the truth and the law and the gospel, right? I think that's the message version of that. But so it says, so I, I began to explain in the midst as like, so we pull out from the gas station and I begin to explain that, that the only person that can offer forgiveness is the person that has had the offense committed against them, is the one that is owed something. That's the only person that can actually offer the forgiveness. She can't do it. Only I could do it. That, that the aggrieved party is the only one that could then offer forgiveness and forgive the debt. That's the only one that can do it. I explained pretty, pretty thoroughly, and then I, I, I go on to, to, to talk about how the ultimate act of, of, of service and kindness would be then if, if the one who is owed something then is able to like pay back uh, the, the debt on, on his own in order to like forgive the debt, but the debt still gets paid. The analogy got a little wishy-washy at some point in there, but I, I did pretty good for a while with this. I thought it was a great gospel presentation. I was pretty happy with myself, uh, and I, I really kind of got on a roll, and at that point, very satisfied with myself and the job that I had done teaching this lesson uh, that was taken from me by my, uh, my pushover wife. Uh, I turned to look at Isaiah, see him in all of this explanation that I had just given, and uh, amazed at the grace and the love that God has for us. And whenever I look back, what I saw is that he had his noise-canceling headphones on and he didn't hear any of it. He had not heard anything that I had said that entire time. And I was like, come on, that was good. That was so good. Which honestly, that moment sums up parenting pretty well. Uh, and I was like, you gotta be, you got to be kidding me. He had not heard anything. Uh, and immediately when that happened, I told Emily, I said, I, I know how I'm starting my sermon on Sunday. Because it perfectly illustrates what Luke is trying to teach us in chapter 8. He's telling us that if we have the faith to listen, the faith to pursue, the faith to believe, the ear to hear, if our ears are open, then God will speak and we will hear him if we are listening. But if we're honest... We all, in some, in, in some way, have our headphones on and our head buried in some video while lessons that God is trying to speak to us through fly right by us and God's voice is drowned out as noise 
And our own personal noise-canceling headphones kind of just wipe it all out. Even right now, Isaiah is probably like, I don't remember, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know that that actually happened. Because he didn't hear any of it. He doesn't know that I, that I said all of these things because he was just in his own world doing his own thing. And so it goes with us. We wonder why God isn't speaking to us. We wonder why we feel so adrift at sea. Why we can't seem to get excited about church or singing songs or reading our Bibles or really anything that has to do with God throughout the week. It's because we don't have the ears to hear or we don't have the hearts to pursue. He's speaking, but we are not actually listening. That's the summation of Luke chapter 8. That's basically what Luke has told us so far in chapter 8, at least the first part. Luke gives us the, 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 one of Jesus' parables, the first one that he gives us uh, in this gospel, the parable of the seed or the sower, however you want to look at it. And he describes the type of hearers around Jesus. And then he goes on to give examples of ways in which God is speaking and we would do well to listen and to hear what he is saying. He tells us that those who listen to what God has to say, they are his true family. They are the ones that are his brothers and sisters. Then Luke goes on to tell us about the calming of the storm and the calming of the, the sea. And he, and he talks about the casting out of multiple, maybe thousands of demons from one person. And he teaches how the winds and the waves listen. He shows us how the demons don't even fight back. They know whatever Jesus says they are going to do. The waves listen, the wind listens, the demons listen. Even the man that was healed of the possession. He listens because he wanted to go with Jesus. Jesus, but Jesus says, don't go with me. Go back to your village and tell everyone what has happened to you. Go restore those relationships. And then he goes out and he does exactly what Jesus had asked him to do. And it's at this point that we pick up on Luke's story this morning. And we're going to see him to continue to drive home this single point about listening. So if this morning feels a bit repetitive, you can blame it on Luke. He wrote it. But let's dive into the the first story of what is actually two different stories that become intertwined. So Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. And we don't know if this is like straight as he comes back across the sea after the calming of the storm. Or if there's like maybe a little bit of time that's elapsed. If there is some time that's elapsed, it's very minimal. It's not much at, at all. But they come back and immediately as soon as Jesus is back in town, as soon as he's back at the dock, the crowd welcomes him. For they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Let's just stop right there. So the disciples come back into town. The disciples uh, come back, and, and, and pretty quickly there are people all around and all over uh, Jesus. And then this, 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 he, he's met very quickly by this man named Jairus. Uh, He's some sort of a high-ranking official within the synagogue. It's debated just how high-ranking he is. It kind of depends on which historical commentator you look at, just how high up he was, how much authority he would have had. But either way, he's a guy with a title in the synagogue. So he's got some standing amongst the people of God, amongst the Jews that are there. He's not a nobody. 
His name is recorded for us because he had a name and people knew it. Our next character that we're going to meet here in just a second, we never learn her name because she was not, did not have the status quite that, uh, that, that Jairus did. But everyone knows Jairus because he's always around the synagogue. He's somebody and his testimony carries weight. Jairus has gotten word that Jesus is in town and he, and, he, and he runs to Jesus because Jairus is a desperate man. He's, he's, he's going to Jesus, or him, him, him going to Jesus likely would cause, at, at minimum, would cause a stir in the town, if not get him in trouble. It could potentially cost him his job. It could potentially cost him his place in society. It might and almost certainly would cause the town gossips to be just kind of a, 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 a Twitter with conversation and, and going around to everyone. And it might be costly, but he doesn't care because he is desperate. Going to this rabbi that's creating such a stir and saying so many different things may have cost him a lot, but losing his daughter would have cost him everything. He doesn't care what it's going to cost him. He wants to save his daughter. Jesus been out on the other side of the water and they could not get to him, but now that he's back, Jairus is not going to miss this chance to find Jesus. So he throws himself at Jesus' feet. He comes to Jesus, throws himself at his feet, every bit the picture of a desperate man. Luke doesn't tell us, but no doubt he pleads with Jesus to come and save his daughter. Evidently, Jesus agrees, because that's where the story goes next. Verse 42. As Jesus went... The people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Jesus' miracles at this point had become so widely known in this area that that he draws a crowd wherever he goes. He can't go anywhere. He can't move and and do anything without having a crowd. And when you put a well-known person like Jairus in the middle of what is happening to this now well-known rabbi who is performing miracles all over the place, the crowd is even larger than it has been before. They want to know what's going to happen. The ruler of the synagogue's daughter is dying, and Jesus is supposed to be the guy that can fix all this. So this is a tense moment. The crowd is growing. There's an entourage around Jesus. They're pressing in around Jesus. And among the crowd is a woman. We don't get to know her name. We don't get to know her name because no one knew her name. Because she was a nobody. She was an outcast. She was somebody that society had completely forgotten. She's a woman that had been bleeding for 12 years. 12 years. As long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. It's not specific. It doesn't tell us anything specific. But almost certainly this is specifically a feminine problem for her. And this woman had tried everything to fix this. She had done everything she could. She had spent all of her money on all the essential oils. She had spent all of her money on all of the pyramid schemes and vitamins that she could find to make it better. She had gone to all the doctors. She had gone to the holistic ones, and she had gone to the to, to the, the, the regular doctors. She had gone to the hospital. She had gone to everybody that she could think of to figure out, how do I get this to stop? I need help to get this to stop, and she was broke. She had nothing left. She'd spent all of her money trying to make this happen. She had nowhere else to go. No more money to spend. Twelve years, almost certainly living alone. The requirements of the law were, were, 
were, were likely in place to help and care for women and not be a stone around their neck, but in this case, because, it, because she just never stopped, because the, the issue never went away, it had become, it, 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 it had become a, a stone around her neck. She would have been ostracized from society. She would not have been welcome to worship. She was not welcome to even sit anywhere, because whatever she sat on would become unclean. Much like the leper of chapter 5, if you remember whenever we talked about the leper in chapter 5, she would have been alone, embarrassed, and desperate. And so into the crowd she goes. Why the crowd? We're not exactly told, but we get hints as we go forward in the story here. We're not exactly told why she goes into the crowd, because crowds are not exactly something she's going to be used to. She's not allowed in crowds. She's not allowed to be around people. She's not allowed to make contact with people. So she's not going to be used to uh, the crowd. She wasn't really used to being around anyone. The only advantage that a crowd has for her is that she might be able to hide. She might be able to make it to Jesus amidst the chaos of the crowd and all that is going on as Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house. She might be able, uh, she, she might be able uh, to hide and make it to Jesus before he sees her coming or before anyone sees her coming and cuts her off. And so she thinks, this is my chance. I'm desperate. I've tried everything. She could be invisible. If only just for a moment, she could just kind of blend in. So let's read what happens here in verse 44. She came up behind him, behind Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. So she lunges touches the edge of Jesus' cloak that he has, and immediately she knows she's healed. Immediately she feels relief from this condition that has afflicted her for 12 years. She feels it physically and she feels it emotionally. She knows it. She is filled with joy, filled with gratitude, filled with excitement about how different her life is about to be. No more shame, no more hiding, no more loneliness, no more embarrassment. And she feels all of that for like two seconds. Like just for this brief moment, she feels this. That's all there. And then this moment of triumph, this moment of of triumph and belief turns to a moment of dread and awkwardness. Jesus Somehow, and we're not really told how, a lot of people like to make a lot out of this moment here when Jesus says, we'll see this in a second, Jesus says that that, that he felt the power go out of him. A lot of people like to try to make a lot out of that, but it doesn't really really tell us what that means, so I'm not going to spend too much time on that. But he knows either way that something has happened. Jesus knows that power has gone out of him. It's been transferred from him to someone, to someone. But who? So he stops. And when he stops, the whole crowd stops. He stops and he asks. And of course, Peter is quick with a response because that's what Peter does. He's like, come on, Jesus, there's people everywhere. Like, are you seriously going to ask us who reached out and touched like your, your robe? 
Come on, Jesus. There's no way. We're, we're trying to keep them off of you, but there's nothing we can do here. There's too many people around. We, we don't know who touched you. Can we just move on? We're not in a place where we can just stop. If we stop, this crowd's only going to grow. It's only going to get worse. Besides, don't forget Jairus' daughter. This little girl is dying, but Jesus is insistent. He doesn't let Peter just kind of brush it off and keep on going. He's insistent. Verse 46, Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, and this is how we, we, my guess is that the crowd was meant to be a cover for her. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. All right. I want you all to do this for me. I want, to, I want you all to do this right now. Everybody in here, I want you to raise your hand. Everybody in here, everybody, raise your hand. All right, like higher, like all the way, like as high as you can. All right, now, there is something inherently about what you're doing right now. There is something inherently exposing about this, right? There is something that you doing this, even though everybody in the room is doing it, everybody's got their hands up. There is something about this that inherently is exposing. All right, you can put it down. It feels like everybody in the room is looking at you when you do that, right? Even though everybody else has got their hands up, it feels like everybody is in the room looking at you. It's, it's a bit awkward, and it's completely exposing. And this is exactly what Jesus does in this moment. He says, who touched me? He demands somebody step up and own that they are the ones that did it. To put their hand up and say, it was me, Jesus. I did it. I'm the one that reached out and touched you. The difference is, it wasn't everybody who was putting their hand up. Everybody was like, don't look at me. Like, heads down. Like, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. Like, arms to the side. They want to make sure that they are not accused of it. He takes this woman who had become an expert at hiding, who had successfully made it to Jesus in the crowd without being spotted or shunned, and he calls her out for what she's done. He says, hand up, who did this? Who reached out and touched me? And at that point, everyone turns and points and says, it wasn't me, we didn't do it. Points her out and says, it was her. And it's like, okay, she realizes, okay, I can't hide any longer. Like, she's got to put her hand up and be like, it was me. This is like one of those, those want-to-get-away commercials. Like, this is where she's at right now. Like, she wants to be anywhere but where she is right now, all eyes on her. She had spent the last 12 years trying to not be seen. And now everyone is looking at her. Her cover is blown. She's been made. And everything she spent years trying to hide is now public for everyone to know. Yes, she knows she's healed, but they don't know that. Her shame and her embarrassment are there for everyone to see. So she puts her hand up. She says through shaking voice and a bowed head, it was me. I did it. And she tells everyone there why she did it. I think that's an interesting part of the story. Like, she doesn't just say, I did it, Jesus. Like, like he, she doesn't just confess to it. She just lays it all bare. She lays it all out there. She tells him why she did it. 
She tells everyone there about her bleeding, about her inability to be healed, about her desperation, about her shame. Can you imagine? The single most embarrassing thing about you that you wouldn't want anyone to know. This thing that would ostracize you from church, from family, from friends, from all of society. And then think about it being something that is such a part of you that you cannot get rid of it. Whatever that thing is in your life, just imagine now being called out and being said, tell everybody what, just, what you just did. Put your hand up. Be exposed for what you've done. She confessed it. Confessed every bit of it. And why she had come to Jesus in the crowd. The secret was out. The shame was public. All that's left, she's sure that is about to come, is rage and anger. Further ostracized, further dismissed, further shamed. In this moment right here, before we know what else happens, if you keep on reading, why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus call her out like this? Wouldn't this further traumatize an already traumatized person? Doesn't it seem cold and heartless? Couldn't he have just like turned to her, like looked over his shoulder whenever he felt the power go out of him? Couldn't he have just like turned to her, their eyes met, she could have been like, oh, I'm healed, and he, kind of, he could have kind of given her like a, a knowing smile, and then he could have just kept on walking. Let her keep her anonymity. Let her go about her life now, not being publicly shamed like this. He could have. But if he had done that, then, then we wouldn't get verse 48. Verse 48, he looks to her after she's made this confession and said, this is what's happened. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Don't miss the beauty of that moment. You see, he didn't stop the crowd, turn to this woman, and demand that she take accountability for her actions. He did not turn to her and shame her. He did, not, he did not try to embarrass her, to rebuke her. That's what she thought was coming. I'm certain of it. She was sure a rebuke was coming. Because it, it, with, with, with her issue, anyone she touched would then be unclean and they would have to go through the whole process of, of restoring themselves to being clean and then being able to go back to the temple to worship. And so nobody wanted to be touched to her. He doesn't turn and rebuke her and say, how dare you touch me now? I'm unclean just like you. Who, who do you think you are pressing in on me like this, trying to rob something from me? Who do you think you are, woman, doing this, just using me for my power and for my miracles who do you think you are look at what you've done jesus doesn't do that at all in my mind's eye whenever i see this i see him kneeling down beside her he leans down to her as she kneels before him he kneels down beside her lifts her head lifts her hands and through tears he calls her his daughter you know, this is the only time in Scripture that Jesus calls someone his daughter. It doesn't happen anywhere else. Just a few verses before, Jesus says that his family is made up of those that heard the word and did it. 
that lived it, that walked in it. And that's what this woman has done. So he looks at her and he points not to her disease, not to her healing. He says, you are healed. But that's not the first thing he points to. He looks to her and he points out not her disease, but her faith. And he says, this has made you well. This is now what defines you. Not your condition, but your faith. That is who you are. That is more true of you than your sickness. You see, he didn't stop the crowd to shame, condemn, or re-traumatize this woman. He stopped the crowd to honor this woman, her faith, and her faith that she put into action. Whatever the thing is that's keeping you full of shame, too full of shame to come to Jesus, too embarrassed to confess it, too prideful to admit, too awful to say out loud, too defining for you that you can't imagine yourself being defined by anyone or anything else. Let this woman's life be a lesson. Jesus honors those that come to him in faith. He always does. No matter what shame came with it. He always honors the one who comes in faith. That secret does not have to haunt you. That sin does not need to control you. That disease, that sickness does not need to define you. Hear Jesus' honor and compassion that he pays to this woman. Probably the only time she's been shown compassion or honor in 12 years. That's who she is. Not a woman with a sickness, a woman of faith. But let's remember this story is in the middle of another story. And this woman's healing, as beautiful as it is, has created a big problem just a few blocks away. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, while he was talking to this woman, while he is kneeled down beside her, stopping the caravan on the way to Jairus' house, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. You're too late. So Jesus stops to care for this woman, but in so doing, he misses out on his chance to heal this little girl. He got distracted. He got taken off task. Unfortunate for Jairus and his family. But the super, superhero can't save them all. Even the superhero has limitations. Death still happens. He can't stop that from coming. Or can he? Verse 50. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, said, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them not to tell anyone what had happened. So Jesus was not going to let a little disruption on the way to a healing stop him from what he came to do. For Jairus, Jairus believed that Jesus could do this. 
That's why he had thrown himself to Jesus' feet. Jairus was desperate, and Jesus was here to help. And so he heard that. And Jesus wasn't going to look Jairus in the eye and say, Sorry, we just ran out of time. There's too much traffic on the way. Couldn't quite make it. Now Jesus goes to finish the mission, to take care of this girl. He gathers in the home with Peter, James, John, Jairus, and his wife. And there's much weeping because this little girl is dead. And Jesus says, nonsense, don't weep. She's just sleeping. This is not a misdiagnosis from a doctor that Jesus is saying here. Like, no, yeah, you missed it. She's, 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 actually, she's actually just asleep. We just got to wake her up a little bit here. Just get her some water, throw it on her face, and she'll be fine. Don't misunderstand. She's dead. But death is not the same vicious enemy to Jesus that it is to us. It's like she's sleeping to him. And they laughed at him. They laughed at him. Now, I'm not sure if this is the disciples that are in the room, if it's the mom and dad that are there in the room. I can't really imagine them laughing. Doesn't seem like a good joke to make at the moment. So I I don't know who it is. It might be the professional mourners that are outside the house. Either way, what Jesus said seemed pretty ludicrous to them. Like, come on, Jesus. That's a bad joke. But then Jesus did the impossible. He brings her back to life. He says, give her a bite to eat. And especially given Jairus' position as the ruler of the temple, it would be a big problem if he went and told everybody what happened. It would only further the pressure that was happening from uh, those that were higher up above Jairus in the, in the, uh, in the kind of the hierarchy of the Jewish uh, faith there. So he says, just keep this one quiet. Go, don't, don't go telling everybody. And this is not the first time we've seen Jesus do this. His power is not a one-time kind of parlor trick. He can raise people from the dead. Now perhaps you struggle with this idea. Perhaps it feels a little too fantastical for you. If so, you're going to struggle with the Christian faith. You're going to struggle with what the Bible teaches There is no Christian faith that does not allow for for miracles. Our faith is built on the resurrection from the dead. But, But remember what our definition of miracles is, especially in the Gospels. Miracles are not when the supernatural breaks into the normal. That's not how we're defining miracles. That's not how the how how we define that, how that works. When something abnormal happens. Uh, and, and spectacular happens. That's, that's often how we think of a miracle, is whenever something abnormal happens. But the way that we've defined a miracle, again, especially in, in, in the gospel, is that when Jesus supernaturally breaks into the brokenness and the pain of this world and restores one small piece of the world into what it was always supposed to be. So when Jesus performs these miracles for this woman and for this little girl, what Jesus is doing is he's not, he's not doing something that is not how it's supposed to be. He's fixing things back to how they should be. Absent sin, absent the brokenness of this world, death should not reign. Disease and sickness should not have dominion. And so these miracles that he's performing, he's not doing something abnormal. He's setting things back to how they should be.
This is what Jesus does over and over and over again. He recalibrates things to how they're supposed to be. If sin had not broken this world, if the brokenness and the, 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 all that comes with sin were not there, that's what Jesus does. He sets it straight. Sometimes that's healing women of diseases. Sometimes that's casting out demons. And sometimes that's raising people from the dead. Why? Because sickness and suffering is not how it's supposed to be. Oppression and slavery is not how it's supposed to be. And death was never meant to be just a part of life. Death is an enemy, and Jesus shows us throughout the Gospels that he has the final say over death. Luke's point in telling us these stories is not to convince us to have the faith of this woman or of Jairus that it would be to misunderstand the story. They were desperate people that had run out of options. That's okay if that's you. That's completely okay if that's you. This woman didn't even want to talk to Jesus. She wasn't necessarily trying to be a disciple. She just needed, she just knew what he could do. She just believed that he had the power to help her. It's not Jairus' faith that healed or raised this little girl from the dead. It is Jesus. Luke's point here, the message of Luke, is that the wind and the waves and the demons and the sickness and the death all hear the voice of Jesus and they obey. They do exactly what they should. This is his point. What what Luke is trying to tell us all throughout chapter 8 is take the headphones off and listen. Take the headphones off and see who this man is. See who Jesus is. Come face to face with him. Don't put him off. Don't keep keep being distracted by the noise of this world. Don't keep piping in all this outside noise that distracts you. But instead, have ears to hear. Listen. And so he gives us this kind of barrage of, of reasons to listen to Jesus. Because he's over the wind of the, in the waves. Because he's over the demons. Because he's over sickness. Because he's over death. He is over all of these things. He has power over them all. Those are all reasons for you to sit back, stand up, and listen to what he has to say. This is Luke's point. All those things do what Jesus says. The question is, will you? Will you listen to the call of God to follow Jesus? The man that has power over all of these things. Will you acknowledge his power over you? This woman's bleeding was meant to bring shame, but it became the very thing that she needed in order to have faith. If she had never had to deal with this issue, she would have never needed Jesus. And she would have never sought him out. Jairus' daughter, her sickness and her death pushed a man to the brink of losing everything. But it was also the catalyst for a faith that saw him fall at the feet of Jesus and risk everything in his life. Because he so desperately needed Jesus. When we get to the end of the book of Luke, 
we're going to see that this, this all keeps going. When death is not just defeated for one little girl for just a few years until she eventually died again, but for all eternity through the cross. Through an instrument that was meant to bring, bring pain and shame, the cross, our salvation is secured. What, what was meant to bring defeat instead brings triumph. What was meant to bring shame instead, instead brings celebration. What was meant to bring death instead brings life. Do you see how all of this works? The storm, the demons, the sickness, the death. All of these things become occasions for Jesus to show who he is. And ultimately, all of that has its fulfillment on the cross and in our salvation. Can Jesus heal today? Absolutely he can. Does that happen today? Absolutely it does. Do we know, is, is there any kind of like a, a recipe for how any of this is going to happen? No. Every time that Jesus heals people in the Gospels, it looks different. It feels different. The, the common theme is that Jesus is sovereign over all of it. And the picture that, that the gospel writers, and then especially when you get further in the New Testament, they keep drawing us back to, is that the ultimate picture that God loves us is not found in whether or not we obtain healing here or whether or not we avoid suffering here. The ultimate picture that Jesus loves us is what he has done for us on the cross. How he defeated death. Not, not once, like we saw in, I think it was in chapter 6 or maybe chapter 7, where he raised someone from the dead. Not once where he was with Jairus' daughter and he raises her from the dead. Not once whenever he raises Lazarus from the dead. Not just these few times, but when he, de- he defeats it for all eternity. And so the question is, for you, do you have ears to hear that? Or will you walk out of this room, put your headphones in, and just keep on going? Will you pop that earbud in where you kind of hear God a little bit over here, but you got the music playing over here, and it's like, eh, we'll decide which one I want to listen to. Luke says, listen. He's speaking. Sometimes it's really quiet right here in the book. Sometimes it's really loud when he raises someone from the dead. Listen. He's speaking. Let's pray. Father, it is our confession that too often, too quickly, we, we, we run to the, the headphones, we put them on our ears, and we drown out everything that is going on around us, and that includes your voice and what you are doing in our own lives and around us. Father, it is our confession that too quickly we, we are distracted by the noise and everything in this world and we are not just distracted by it we we drink it in and we make it a part of who we are father i pray this morning that we would hear the message that we would see the person of jesus and that you would stir in our hearts in such a way that we listen 
and we would not turn away distracted. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.